0: From Bar Save. this is Chad, and as promised, we're going to start today uh, trying out some segments. So, I figured the best one to start with is a segment we've actually done several times. It's called The Excuse for Why We Haven't Done an Episode in a While segment. Uh, the title needs some work, but basically, if you listen to the podcast, you know that Earth Dawn is our second favorite hobby. Our favorite hobby is being coughed on repeatedly by children uh, who are very cute and happen to share our last name, but that like to make us sick on a very regular basis. And we've done that about three times, I believe, since the last episode. We were (laughs) planning on recording this weekend, and another round of it came down again. So Rachel is laying down, not feeling well. The kids are sick. Uh, I have a very slight cold. Overall, I'm feeling pretty good. So rather than wait for her, I figured I would do another episode because it's long overdue. Uh, so we're actually not going to be doing the other segments we planned on today. We are going to be talking about you know, some ideas for the podcast and what we can do. But I think we just need to get through this latest round of colds, hope it's the last one, and then kind of get back to a normal flow. We are going to continue talking about par length, though. Uh, as I mentioned last time, that we have to talk about the laneways, which are these giant highways that kind of connect the ruins together. It doesn't really fit on one episode or another because it's about 40% of an episode's worth of material. Um, so I need to decide whether to tack it on and make one big long episode or split it up, uh, what I have here, between the laneways, the war zone, and the Western Catacombs that may end up being two. So I'm just gonna hit record, do the whole thing. And uh, I may end up splitting it into two or it may be just one longer episode. I'll just see how it goes. Okay, so I just need to do the disclaimer real quick and then we'll go on to par length. EarthDon is a registered trademark of FASA Corporation. Any use of FASA Corporation's trademarks or copyrighted material is not intended as a challenge to those trademarks or copyrights. This is a fan work and unless explicitly noted, material it contains is not approved or endorsed by FASA Corporation. Okay, so we're continuing our discussion of Parlength the Forgotten City. That's the name of the campaign set that we're drawing all this material from. And it's from first edition, so it's no longer in print, but you can still get the PDF from FASAgames.com. It's currently only $15, and you could, you could get seriously several hundred hours of play out of just this campaign set if all you had was that in the rule books you could play for a very long time it's highly recommended uh while you're there you may want to also check out the uh, parlance adventures book that one's only six dollars that has four adventures in it and they're geared for characters from circle one through four I would say a couple of them are on the higher side. Uh, there's one, there are a couple in there you may not want to do with a circle one, but overall circles one to four, and that gives you a nice, uh, nice starting point if you're starting a new campaign or you've been playing for a little while and want to, you know, want to um, change it up and move to par length. Those adventures can be a good way to get your feet wet, and then the campaign set gives you a lot of info to kind of fill that out. And, uh, and then to improvise and write adventures going forward in par length. We mentioned a little bit at the beginning of the series about the overall structure of this campaign set, but I wanted to review it real quick because that's been a while. Each section of the ruins has its own section in the book, and each one is an above ground and below ground. The city is d- divided into fourths, so you have eight sections. And today we'll be talking about the western part of that. Now, each section in the book, at the beginning, it gives you a, uh, a really quick first-person viewpoint story. It's, it's a, like a diary entry, or maybe it's a scrap of paper that was discovered uh, where someone had written down an account of what happened to their adventuring party. And there's one of those for each section of the city. I don't really have the time to, uh, to read it and go in-depth on that, but I recommend if you have the book, if you go through that and read those on each one, that can be something you can you can show to the players, too. There are no spoilers in them, but it gives you kind of a good feel of the flavor of each section of the city, and then the GM and the players can kind of read those and get a quick glance of, you know, what what would it feel like to play a game in that part of the city. And just a quick reminder also that the box set and the PDF version of the box set as well contains, I believe it's 24 player handouts. And these cover different areas of the ruins. They can be anywhere from hand-scrawled maps to uh, historical accounts to other adventurers' diaries, things like that. And the players can go see Vardigul, who is a Tskrang, who lives in Haven, and they can purchase these. And that will give them kind of intel on the areas of the city that they want to go explore. You can work these into your game in a lot of different ways. They can be starting points for the GM to just flip through the handouts, see what looks fun, and then design, you know, flesh them out more and design adventures around those. Or the players, it's a good way to get the players to kind of drive the overall uh, direction of the campaign. They could just go to Varticles, purchase the ones that sound interesting to them, and then the GM can either design or improvise the game around that. Or you can sort of do a blend of the two. The, the GM could plan a game in a particular part of the ruins, and then the players, knowing that they're going to be heading uh, to the war zone or to the twists or wherever they're going, they could go to Vardigals, purchase some information, and kind of flesh out their knowledge a little bit more. Uh, so that they're better prepared. So make sure you, uh, if you're the GM, take some time to look through those and familiarize yourself with them because there's a lot of a lot of good info there that you can use as a starting point for games. We talked about that a little bit more. We talked about Vardigul and the people working with her and all of that and her personality. If you refer back to our episodes that we did about Haven, she comes up a fair amount. Okay, so it's time to talk about the laneways. The laneways were originally called the Grand Boulevards, and they are these absolutely massive roads that dissect the city into quadrants. Now, they don't run north, south, east, west. They're on diagonals. So you have a northeast, northwest, southeast, and southwest laneway. And the southeasterly one, that one dead ends right into Haven. So if you go through the Haven Gate and go into the ruins, you're on the southeast laneway. And if you keep following that, it'll take you right to the center of the ruins where it connects up to the other three laneways. Now, these streets are 20 feet wide, and they have a 10-foot wall on either side made of limestone and granite. Like all of Paralength, these were built to inspire. The purpose of the city was to make people in Barsave look at it and think about how great Thera was. So these were originally just lined with statues of famous Therans. These could be political leaders or military leaders or magicians, anybody that was uh, of great stature in Thera. Probably had a statue on here. Now, most of these statues are pretty well broken down. Some of them, you just see some feet there. Other ones are, you know, half intact. Maybe the head's gone. The arms are gone. They look nothing at all like what they originally would have been. But this would have been a sight to see back when it was new. Now, as the laneways come together in the center of the city... There's a magical fountain. This would have been kind of the center of public life at the time before the scourge. And this fountain would put on these just brilliant displays of magic and light and sound. And it was just a sight to behold. But like all other things in the world of Earthdawn, the scourge took a major toll and it was corrupted. And now, instead of being the singing fountain, it's called the screaming fountain. And instead of water, it runs with blood. And it was lined originally with all of the passions, one statue of each passion. But curiously, all of the statues of the passions have been destroyed except for three. And those are the mad passions, the, the passions that uh, represent evil and chaos. Those are the three that are intact. Now, the scourge not only affected the look of the fountain, but it actually distorted the magic that makes the whole thing work. And now the fountain has what's called mental assault. It is a, basically it's like a spellcasting roll that the GM rolls, and depending on the result, it can uh, have different effects, ranging anywhere from a uh, maybe a strong compulsion to leave the area, it could make someone pass out, They could have temporary insanity or, in extreme cases, even permanent insanity. Now, the book gives the GM a lot of flexibility here because what may be appropriate for one group could be just overwhelming for another group. So the GM can kind of decide: is it a fixed difficulty, or does the intensity go up and down? So you can tailor the the uh, step that you roll for your group. I sort of like to use this as more of a color background kind of thing. When people go buy it, it should be a challenge. But I don't, you know, want the entire group going permanently insane. That just wouldn't be a lot of fun for any. Well, it'd be fun for me. It wouldn't be that fun for the <laughs> for the players. So I kind of tend to make this something it is a stumbling block gets in their way a little bit but doesn't completely derail the whole game but you know it's up to the gm like all things how big or a small big or small of a part they want this to play now one thing about the laneways is that since they're so heavily traveled this is after all the main way of getting around the ruins they have been pretty well picked clean of loot uh, so you aren't really going to probably find much of value there aside from possibly coming across some fallen adventurers or maybe uh, some bandits that, you know, maybe some bandits attack you. You fight back and you can take whatever, whatever they had on them. So you can gain some things like that, but this is not really like a treasure hunting area. Pretty much anything of value in the laneways themselves would have uh, disappeared long ago. Now originally the laneways would have offered very rapid and very safe travel throughout the whole city. That was their entire purpose. But there was a civil war that broke out shortly after Parlength was removed from the world, and it turned out that the horrors were behind the civil war and they were they were uh, basically influencing people to push one faction against another. And there were these ongoing wars that just raged back and forth. And in that war, it was obviously important to be able to move around the city. So control of the laneways was a major strategic objective. So as a result of that, you saw a lot of heavy fighting in the laneways And so it it completely changed the landscape. So now it's littered with rubble. It's difficult to ride. Um, Animals, anyone riding an animal needs to actually make an animal handling test, or the animal, if it's running by itself, would have to make a dexterity test. Um, You need a nine or uh, you need a five if it's a thunder beast that you're riding. They are are more sure-footed. But you'll have whole sections where this 10-foot wall has come down, and if you think about how large of a wall that is, if a 10-foot wall comes down, that's going to be quite a bit of rubble. So you have uneven footing, you have broken stones everywhere, uh, statues that have fallen over. It's just a pretty chaotic area to try to go through. Now, the other thing that makes it even more complicated is it's not just it's not just the surface that was damaged. Some of this damage was so uh, so intense that it knocked a hole right down into the catacombs below so not only do you have to worry about tripping and falling on the surface but you may actually plummet all the way down into a cavern it could be a fall high enough to kill an adventurer um, or at least wound them seriously and then on top of that, you fall down into the catacombs and you don't know what's lurking down there that you're going to have to deal with. So on the whole, the laneways are now one of the most dangerous parts of the ruins. It still can be a good way to go. It may be faster than trying to you know, hop over the wall and navigate through one of the other areas of the ruins. So it's definitely something you should consider using. You will probably end up on the laneways a lot. But don't think that just because you're on a road that it's, uh, you know, that it's going to be a picnic, you know, having a picnic on a road like you do uh, is an excellent metaphor. So it's not at all like that. So in addition to this chaotic physical landscape with all this rubble, you also have to worry about the fact that you're pretty well exposed. Anyone who wants to could find a spot to camp out to ambush you because they can see you coming down the laneways for a while Uh, It's not like, you know, city streets where we have a lot of little alleys and sideways, there's one main way you're going, they know which way you're going to be going, and they can just, just find the perfect spot to launch an ambush. This is a pretty common occurrence. There are different gangs and uh, different groups that will try to control the laneways, but none of them have the, uh, the numbers to be able to control all of it. So you'll have different factions in different areas, and it tends to be disorganized. But the one thing that you can count on for sure is that this is going to happen. So you really need to be on guard constantly when you're on the laneways. No, I, like most GMs, enjoy a good ambush. I think the bandit ambush is its just something that even when the players know it's coming, I can still do it just to rough them up a little bit. Uh, but it's actually a good way, too, for lower-level characters for lower circle you can throw in these ambushes make them sort of challenging but kind of skew it to where the players should win and then you kill the bandits and maybe they get a minor upgrade he's got a slightly better sword than you have or whatever so this can be a good way also for newer groups To kind of get them some combat experience, get them familiar with the the system and how the dice rolling works, and also get them some gear. So so that's one of the things that I like about the laneways early on in the campaign. But what's even more fun for the GM are traps. Everybody loves traps. Uh, The book's got some specific kinds of traps, but one of the major ones you'll see in this area are blade traps. Um, There can be pit traps. You can have all kinds of things, and obviously you can make your own. But these aren't just normal traps. These are traps set by horrors. There's a particular type of horror called a scurrier now this is a minor horror it's not one of these uh, gigantic horrors that's going to corrupt entire towns these are little annoying monkey-like things that have no skull on top their head and you can see their brains so they're pretty disgusting but their main thing that they do is they run around resetting these traps and this is one of those little details I love about Earthdawn. Sometimes you kind of have to wander in certain RPGs. Okay, I'm in this ancient area that no one's been in forever. And it's heavily traveled by other adventurers recently. Why are these ancient traps still working? And in Earthdawn, they didn't want to just have stuff like that that's just kind of... Out there, of oh well, just they're just there somehow. So they have these horrors called scurriers that run around resetting the traps. And you should have your players kind of get little glimpses of this. They'll see them peeking out behind statues, or jumping down the wall, or climbing around. And this isn't really an enemy that they're going to be directly, uh, directly fighting most of the time. Although there are stats in the book, their main function is just to set these traps and and keep them operational. Now, one thing for the GM to consider during the game, and this goes really for all parts of a game that you're running, but especially with the travel to and from the place where the main adventure is going to happen. You really need to gauge the player's reaction and see. You don't want to throw so much stuff at them that it takes two hours to get where you're going and then two or three hours to get back. Um, So you probably need to really pay attention to the pacing and see, can I do something really interesting or is this something that we should sort of gloss over and make it a little bit of a background thing? Um, another thing that you can do is sometimes I like to make the trip to wherever they're going. I like to make that pretty quick and easy. And then once they've completed the objective and they just barely scrape by and they're bruised and beaten and bleeding and they got to get back home to Haven to rest, now I throw an adventure at them on the laneways and it adds a lot of tension if, if something that normally wouldn't be a big deal is now putting them in a real fight for survival just to get back. So you can do that too, as long as the players are having fun, you can sort of scale up or down the amount of focus on the laneways. The other thing to keep in mind is you don't wanna force the players to have to use the laneways. It is the most common mode of travel, but there are other ways you can go. And this is where I would encourage you to take that, uh, take the map wall map that comes and spread it out on the table or look at it on an iPad or a laptop or whatever uh, if you get the PDF version. And you can just show the players the entire city and say, okay, you're here, you need to get there and then role-play the planning session of what to do. Some other options, they can go outside of the city. There's an outer wall that surrounds Parlanth. It's a pretty pretty large wall, pretty hard to get over, but the city is in ruins, so if they invest the time, they can find some holes in the wall or find somewhere that they can scale. But there are other challenges with that. You have a jungle uh, around a good portion of the ruins, so there are a lot of wild creatures and a lot of difficulties in a jungle so they could go that way Um, and it could be difficult to find these breaks and even if they take the laneways they still could have some difficulty finding breaks in the 10-foot wall that's near where they want to go so should they go directly as close as they can on the laneways and look for a break there or if they find a, a break or a good place to scale the wall but you're several miles away, are they better off hopping over the wall and having more distance within the actual ruins off of the laneways. So there are a lot of different ways to tackle it and I think just as a GM you need to be flexible and be willing to kind of improvise encounters over, you know, based around whichever situation they choose. Uh, I find players usually just run right down the laneways in my group. Anyway, that tends to be the more common one, but just keep in mind that there are a lot of other ways to do it. Now, there are some specific encounter ideas in the book. I'm not going to spend the time to go into them now, but just so you know, there's some additional things there or based on what I've talked about here and what you're reading the book, you can, you can easily improvise your own also. The next area of the city that we'll be talking about is called the War Zone. Now this was originally called the Military Quarter. And in the original design for Parlanth, this was where all of the troop barracks and any other kind of military structures would have been. They built this area of the city to be very impressive. Parlanth on the whole, that was a goal as we've mentioned before. But the Military Quarter, they especially wanted it to look just overpowering and intimidating. So a lot of these buildings were made to be larger than was really necessary for their purpose. And they also had a lot of statues with uh, very dominating-looking military themes of uh, showing the might of the Theron military. Because the military was based here, that meant that this area of the city was especially hard hit during Parlane's civil war. There were a lot of fierce battles fought in this area, and the entire military quarter was reduced to rubble. In many areas of Parlinth, you can look at a building and tell this was a store, this used to be a home, this was an administrative building. But for the most part, in the uh, in the military quarter, or what is now known as the war zone, it's just piles of rubble, and it's anyone's guess what these buildings originally would have been. Now, this destruction was not just from the Civil War, but after all of the name-givers in Parlanth were dead, and remember, at this time, Parlanth was still removed from the physical world. It was basically in its own little pocket of astral space, almost like its own universe. The horrors got very bored, and they had to have something to entertain themselves. And what they did was they staged these elaborate war games using what are called falsemen. These falsemen were originally created by the Theran magicians to serve as servants in their labs and sometimes in their homes and businesses. Falsemen can be made from a variety of materials The most common ones would have either been straw or wax, and they go by the name strawman and waxman, so you'll see that terminology in the book also. Some of the more rare ones would have been made from more durable materials like stone or metal, and some of them were even made from precious metals, gold, silver. Those would be extremely rare, but they do exist. Now, when they were created by the magicians, they were given not really even personalities, but kind of just like a base-level intelligence. They could carry out simple tasks, but they didn't really think, and they, they definitely weren't sentient. Uh, now, what happened was when the horrors took them over, the horrors named them. They never had names before. And, you know, like anything in on, Earth Dawn, names are very important. Um, It basically, a name gives something its magical significance. So what the Horrors did was they named these false men with names of uh, characteristics that they found appealing. So, for example, some of them were called backstabber, vicious, merciless, wicked. There are a lot of other examples in the books, but those are the types of names. And by giving them those names, they took on those traits as a personality. Some of the lower la- ranking, uh, lower ranking falsemen would be named things that are more demeaning. Some of the examples given in the book are rot, stink, sneak, filth, things like that. So after naming the false men and giving them these rudimentary personalities, the horrors started them competing in this ongoing war. And the different sides will wear armbands of different colors. So if you're adventuring in the war zone and you see these false men moving around, you can look at the color armband and easily tell which faction they belong to. Currently, there are three factions. Uh, one is led by a false man named Guile, and obviously, as you could guess from the name, Guile's strategy revolves around trickery and backstabbing. Uh, there's another one named Smasher, who doesn't use any kind of complex tactics. It's just all about overwhelming the other side with force, just, just uh, full assaults. And then there's a third faction called Never Surrender. They are sort of the underdogs, but they are trying to hang in there with their perseverance and hope that they will uh, eventually overtake the others just by never giving up. Now, no side in this war ever makes any kind of permanent gains. they uh, It's just sort of in the falseman's nature of these personalities they have that once one side starts getting close to victory, they'll tend to fight among themselves over who's going to get the spoils or someone else within the group thinks that they'd be a better leader and they start plotting against them. Currently, within Smasher's ranks, there is another falseman named Viper who's trying to take control. So it's up to the GM. Is that going to be successful? Is that not? So the GM, obviously, uh, as in all things, has control over which way these go and can kind of uh, change these factions around to suit the needs of their game Another important thing to note is that the number of combatants in this war remains pretty stable. Generally the false men don't fight to the death. If one side ends up being overpowered, they will retreat and the other side will let them go. They regroup and they just go do it again because the horrors, uh, you know, this was for their own amusement. It wouldn't be too amusing if the sides just obliterated each other and it's over. So it's sort of built into the game that it never ends. Now, it doesn't. I don't believe it specifically says in the book whether the horrors are creating new falsemen because some would be destroyed from time to time. I don't know if they're creating new ones, but I wouldn't think that would in any way beyond be beyond the powers of a horror. So, if it suits your game, you could have the horrors making new falsemen as needed. For GMs wanting to use the Falsemen Wars in their campaigns, the book gives you a lot of help. The three main faction leaders that we talked about, Guile, Smasher, and Never Surrender, their stats are in the book, but the book also gives you some information about the other general classes of Falsemen: strawmen, waxmen, stone men, and steelmen. So between all of that, you've got all the stat information you're gonna need. You may wanna modify them a little bit for individuals. But basically you can see the relative powers of of these different types of Falsemen. Now, one thing that you're gonna to need to think about, though, is depending on the kind of game you want to run, you can make some changes to the nature of Falsemen personalities. Uh, for example, can they change? Can they learn and grow? Are they truly sentient now that they've been named, or are they still more. You know, basically just an unthinking thing carrying out a task. Uh, the campaign set book does give some ideas and some options. It's another one of these multiple choice things. It gives, I believe, three different, three different things that you can do, or you can obviously make up your own. Now, some of this you could probably leave a little open ended and just throw these into the game and see how it goes. But if the characters start wanting to interact with these falsemen in non-combat situations, it'd be good to have thought about that up front so that you know what they can and can't do within your particular uh, version of Earthdawn that you're playing. So, for example, it, it might be possible to negotiate with some of them. So say the characters want to travel through a particular area of the war zone to get somewhere else. Would it be possible in your game for the characters to have a conversation with the leader of that faction come to some kind of deal to allow safe passage through? You may or may not allow that as the GM. The one thing that the book does say about that, though, is that even if you can work out a deal with a false man like that, Realize it's still pretty risky for the player characters because, one, even if the false men agree to something and stick to the deal, there are other factions that aren't going to be bound by that. Also, the territory is constantly shifting. So, if you go through one day and you make a deal with a particular faction, you could come back a couple days later, and that faction's not even in control of that area. And the other thing is the falsemen have a tendency to just just uh, snap and go back on their word, and they might be fine one minute and attacking you the next. So thinking about those kinds of dynamics, will give you a better way of knowing how to role-play those situations if the characters, uh, player characters come in contact with them. If a lot of players in your group really like hack-and-slash combat-based adventuring, then putting the Falseman Wars front and center in your campaign can be a really good way to do that. In addition to just the the fun of getting to do a lot of combat... This can also be rewarding for the players because the heads, or if you can get a even a complete torso of a falseman, those can be worth a considerable uh, considerable amount of money. And the more durable the material is, the more valuable they are. So, for example, a strawman head wouldn't really be worth all that much, but the head of a stone man or one that's made out of steel or some kind of other metal those would be extremely valuable. So the more rare it is and the larger piece it is, the more intact it is, the more money. There are some tables in the book that give you the specifics, but that could be a, um, that could be a type of game you could play if the players want to be almost like bounty hunters going out and killing these false men and then selling the pieces of them. But that's not the only way to use the false men wars. There is also a uh, gambling ring in Haven that has sprung up around, around the wars. There's this operation run by a fourth circle troll Skyraider whose name is Pagmore Giltthroat. And he uses an airship called the Unyielding. And this airship will fly over the war zone and they will monitor which factions are in control of which landmarks. And there's a system based on the, uh, the number of landmarks that change hands during a week. And you can place a bet. And depending on how much of a gain or a loss that particular faction makes that week, that shows how much money you stand to win or lose. Now, this airship is really a, kind of a sight to see. You'll You'll sometimes just see it flying over the ruins and coming back. It's barely functional. It's got a giant section of the hull missing and it can barely steer and maneuver and the book says that that uh, Pegmore makes a point of keeping it away from other airships because one if he was ever attacked he's just a sitting duck there's no possible way it could defend itself the other thing is it's not very maneuverable so he could very well end up with a mid-air collision so you can use this as a way to introduce the Falseman. so if you are the players are walking around Haven or somewhere else somewhere in the ruins and it's not even a part of the session you're playing today, you could just tell them they look up and they see an airship and it's over the western part of the city and use that to kind of drop in a hook so that when you bring up the Falsman Wars a little later, they will already, uh, you know, they could kind of make the connection, oh, that was that airship that we saw. So it's always good to think about things like that and be leaving little breadcrumbs that you can use later. So in addition to this airship being used to come up with the official calculation of which sides are winning in the Falseman Wars, it also says in the book that Pagmore will take adventurers up in the ship for a fee. So this could be a way, if they want to plan ahead a certain mission, they could do some aerial reconnaissance to go into a go over a particular part of the ruins. Scout it out and know what they're in for. Another thing that I like to do with this is it's a cool place to have secret meetings. So if you're doing any kind of espionage or secret society based stuff, I have uh, I've had those kind of meetings on board the airship, like have someone in the secret society, they know Pagmore, and they can get access to the airship, and you have this uh, this meeting up there on the airship where you're away from people that might be trying to spy on you. That's just a really cool, cool setting. So I've used it that way once in a, in a campaign. Now the false men are probably the main thing that you're going to deal with if you're in the war zone, but that's not the only challenge. Another, another thing that really can get in adventurers' way is the vegetation that grows in this area. It grows really thick and it can only be cut with a machete or other large blades. but some of these plants are very dangerous. And I want to leave this as a surprise for the player. So I'm not going into the details, but the GM can look uh, look in the book. it's got specific kinds of plants. and uh, it's kind of, it can be a fun way to surprise people because the players are not always expecting the specifics of what happens when you start cutting into some of these plants. Now, in addition to them being dangerous, they also grow back quickly. So there's this thick blanket of plants that covers the entire war zone, it makes it almost impossible to excavate any sites, so that can be a frustration that you can throw at players. Also, they find uh, you know some kind of hidden structure or some something they want to get into, and it's it's just hard going trying to clear out the veg, uh, vegetation to even get in there. The other thing is that the war zone has quite a bit of riches in it because for, for years and years, these false men have used gold and jewels and artifacts. They've used these as pawns in their game. They have to have something to fight over. It doesn't really have any intrinsic value to them, but they just sort of, you know, everyone in par length was dead, so the whores gathered up all this treasure, gave it to the false men and said, here, fight over this. So over the years, a lot of this stuff has been dropped, so there could be gold and jewels and things all over the place, but this vegetation is completely covered it. So any adventurers that want to find any of this valuable stuff, they're going to have to systematically fight back all these plants, which have their own challenges. And you could even be walking right by something of great value and just not even see it. Another major challenge of being in the war zone are traps. These would primarily be pit traps. Some of them were intentionally dug out by the false men as part of the war games, and those will typically have spears in the bottom. But others are just cave-ins that have happened over the years, either naturally or as a result of a major battle. You can have entire sections of ground that have given way and collapsed down into the catacombs. So this can be used in the game as a danger that could cause damage to someone falling. But this also can be an interesting way for the GM to introduce players into the catacombs below, the western catacombs, which we'll talk about in a moment. But these traps, it's compounded by the fact that you have all this vegetation. So in a lot of areas, you could be just walking around, think that in front of you is solid ground. and It's not. It's just a blanket of plants. You put your feet on it and you just fall below. Now, an extreme case of this, there is a deep chasm leading down to the catacombs. It's, uh, it's called the Great Ravine, and it was created by some sort of horror magic. And it, it is this massive cavern and a lot of false men over the years have fallen into it. And there's actually a continuous battle raging at the bottom of this chasm by false men that were not smart enough to find their way out back up to the surface. So in addition to the war zone being just an interesting area of the city by itself, it also is a nice way to get players into the catacombs. I had a game where I gave them some pretense for going into the war zone thinking that that was the main adventure I had planned for the day. But what I really wanted to do was get them into that area and have them fall into a pit trap into the Western Catacombs where the actual adventure was planned. So it was a nice way to change it up. They thought they were going to be doing one thing and it ended up being a completely different game. So the Western Catacombs, they're located directly below the war zone. And it was originally called the Experimentation Chambers. The Theran magicians conducted a wide range of experiments there, anywhere from creating new spells, um, studying the relationships of the astral planes, creating new magical weapons and magical items. Uh, Some of them were researching the horrors to try to find better defenses against the horrors, or possibly even for darker purposes. Uh, some of them were just following their curiosity wherever it happened to take them. So this area, basically anything goes as far as magic. There could be any type of experiment that happened there. You could find items. You could have experiments that are still in progress. A Theron magician started some kind of magical process that's still running to this day. So if your group is really into magic, the Western Catacombs would be an excellent excellent place to run a campaign. Now the Western catacombs are significant, not just because of the experiments that happened there, But it was also the site of the Namegivers' last stand against the Horrors in Parlanth. There was a massive battle fought there, and the Theran magicians killed many Horrors, but every single one of them ended up being killed as well. They, in some cases, unleashed some spells and magical items that they'd been working on that had not yet been fully tested. And the result is that there are a lot of strange magical effects in the Western Catacombs that still linger to this day. There are some specifics here that I really don't want to spoil for the players, so at the end of the episode, I'm going to give a spoiler warning and give you a few seconds to stop listening if you're a player, and if you're a GM, you can, you can hang on. We'll have some ideas of uh, some things that you can do in this area. Now, as far as the physical description, it's always good to be able to tell the players what they're seeing when you're walking around. And you don't want every part of the ruins to just start looking the same and have the same descriptions. So it's good to have some basic ideas about what the different areas look like so you can set them apart. In this area, the tunnels are larger than you would see in many other areas of the catacombs. And they're more decorative. So a lot of these, uh, a lot of them will have very ornate uh, magical symbols like carved into the walls. It's a lot of it's molded plaster. And adventurers a lot of times will see this and they'll think that these these are wards or some kind of magical, powerful magical symbols. They tend to actually be more decorative. The floors in the western catacombs are highly decorative as well. They're made of very bright, colorful marble tiles. And some of them are arranged in geometric patterns, but some of them will have mosaics depicting famous Theran magicians. Now, some areas of this has been completely destroyed, because as we mentioned, there was this massive battle that raged. So you'll see entire sections of the catacombs where the chambers and the tunnels are, have just been obliterated. But some areas are not not as heavily damaged. And in those cases, these floors would still be intact. But they tend to be covered by a, a layer of debris. So anywhere from chunks of walls that have fallen down or maybe dead leaves, and mud, things like that. But you could have some areas that are exposed when a character is walking through and they see a little flash of color and they sweep it away a little bit and start to see a mosaic. So you could have that be something that the characters could kind of get a glimpse of and then they could uncover and learn something from these mosaics. Another thing that's different about the design of the western catacombs is that the the shapes of the rooms tend to be highly dependent on the functions. So you'll see in other areas of the city that it's very grid-like, or you will see that there was this original design that was very rigid, and then over time people got away from the design and added their own modifications. You don't see that as much in this area, because since the Theron magicians had so much clout and so much influence, they were able to influence the design right up front. So they needed a hexagon shaped room for a particular spell, or they needed a circle, or they needed whatever kind of configuration, they were able to get that up front. So you don't as much in this area see this patchwork, of, you know, half-baked fixes for things and changing things up. It basically was designed the way they needed it from day one. Some of the chambers in the Western Catacombs have been undisturbed since before the scourge. Now, this is an amazing, exciting find, especially if anyone in your group is into magical research because the main treasure you're going to find in the Western Catacombs is not it's not gold. And it's not jewels, it's going to be magical information, historical information, or possibly magical artifacts that have never been found before. Originally, most of the chambers in the Western Catacombs were separated by heavy iron doors, but the majority of these were damaged or destroyed during the battle with the Horrors. So you'll see some where the doors are just missing, other times they'll be laying there off their hinges, or they may even be completely just melted by the effects of whatever spell hit them. Now, obviously, a spell or some kind of an effect that was strong enough to melt an iron door, in most cases, is going to just obliterate the contents of the room. So there are a lot of these rooms where everything in it has been lost. If you do come across one of these rooms that appears to be untouched, it is almost always going to be protected by a magical lock or, in some cases, even a magical trap. The GM should really think ahead of time about what the contents of the room are. And if you are going to have a room like that, what type of security would make sense to have in place. So it's good to have have the protection of the room make sense with the contents of the room and kind of think about that as a whole. Most of these chambers would have had air vents that lead up to the surface. These would be barely large enough for a windling to fit through, but over the years, especially with the overly aggressive vegetation that grows in the war zone above, over the years, most of these have become blocked and clogged by vines and other kinds of plants that have grown down into them. So in most cases, you're not gonna be able to get through those today, but you can still use them in your game because, and this this would be a frustrating thing for players, but exploring ancient runes should be frustrating on a regular basis. So it's not terribly uncommon to find these doors that have not been accessed. They have magical locks on them. The players go to extraordinary lengths to bypass these magical locks, sometimes um, having to dispel the magic, sometimes having to solve a riddle or figure out some way to open it. They go through all of that. They get into the room and find out that uh, over time that the weather and the plants and everything just came through these vents and just destroyed everything in the room. So you could have a completely untouched door and behind it is just ruins. That's a fairly common occurrence. When characters are adventuring in the western catacombs, they're going to come into contact with a very wide array of creatures, especially magical creatures. The magical creatures tend to be drawn to this area, most likely because of these lingering magical effects from this great battle that happened between the magicians and the horrors. You will also see some undead and horror constructs here as well. So some of the creatures that you may see, and this is not an exhaustive list, uh, but you may run into cadaver men, crackbills, demirace, ghouls, gargoyles, even things that prefer other physical environments like bog gobs. The book says that uh, they will, because they're drawn to this area because of the magic, they will lay aside their preferences of living in swampy areas, and they will come to the western catacombs. You'll also have to deal with false men that have fallen down from the war zone above through some of these pits and that are trying to get back into the game. They're trying to get back to the surface. If they see an adventure there, and they're going to probably see that adventure as being an impediment to their uh, progress to get back up to the surface, and they'll be very likely to fight. Now, these are going to tend to be the weaker, less intelligent, low-level false men. Like the straw men and the wax men you're probably not going to run into guile and smasher down there uh, below but you will see some of their minions kicking around in the in the tunnels now you also are going to have like any any area of the ruins the structures themselves can be dangerous so uh, players should be watching out for collapsing floors unstable walls ceilings that may give way at any moment things like that and this area will also be heavily trapped The majority of those will be magical traps, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. There could be some physical traps as well. And also, there's really no way to know exactly what to expect. But as I've said before, there are a lot of lingering magical effects. And so you need to kind of expect the unexpected here. One uh, one side effect of that is it can also make the area difficult to map because some of the way that uh, tunnels and chambers are connected doesn't always make physical sense. So you could be in one area and you walk through a door and you don't realize it, but you've been magically transported to a different area of the catacombs. So, and and those, those kind of connections can shift over time. So you never know exactly if you go back another time, is the layout going to be the same? Or are there these invisible portals that are going to kind of warp you to different places? That's just one example of some odd magical things that can happen, but the GM can throw absolutely anything at you in this. So players in the Western Catacombs need to be be ready to think on their feet for things like that. Well, I have been trying and mostly failing to avoid constantly saying, check the book. There's more in the book. Look at the book. But the reason I keep coming back to that is there is an absolute wealth of information there, and it's way more than we could go into, even if we did triple the length of this series. There's just a ton of info there. So absolutely, you're going to want to pick up a copy of this if you don't already have it. Not only is it a great addition to your game, but by buying anything on FASAgames.com, you're supporting FASA. It just gives them more resources to work with to, to uh, keep the game moving forward and to keep adding new resources. A um, couple FASA announcements also. The fourth edition Earthdung Companion is getting very close to being finished. They, uh, they're working on the layout, and I believe they're still getting the art together, but that should be coming very soon. That's going to extend the game to uh, have more information about the higher circles. And there are also a lot of things that can be used at any circle. Um, There are talent knacks in there and uh, just a lot more detail, things that couldn't fit into the fourth edition uh, player's guide and GM guide. So keep an eye out for that. Also, I have only played a session or two of this game, but Fastly's got another game called 1879. It's very interesting. It's kind of an alternate reality. Uh, It's based on Earth history, but it skewed off and took its own path. And it's sort of a steampunk with magic kind of thing. Um, so 1879 has had a few new products out, and they've also started a web comic. They've got a few of those, so check out FASAgames.com. And as always, make sure to talk about Earth Dawn and FASA on social media and tell your friends. Uh, just do everything that you can do to promote this this excellent game. And uh, one other thing you can do to help, if you run an EarthDone podcast, you should try not to have multiple month gaps between episodes. Uh, Yeah, that applies to me more than you. Um, So I'm going to try to do better on that, I really swear. But people need to stop sneezing on me um, and making me sick. So that's something we are going to work on in the Lair household here. As always, feel free to leave us some comments on our website, LavaMonkeyGames dot com, at the uh, on the page for each episode at the bottom. There's a comment section, or you can get us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Lair, C H A D L A R E, and Rachel is at Lava Monkey Games. All right, well, that's all that we have for players. If you're a GM or if you're a player who likes to have the game ruined through spoilers and you like to cheat by knowing what's coming, uh, feel free to listen. I'm going to pause for a couple seconds. So we will see you later if you're a player, if you're a GM or a cheater. We have a few uh, few extra tips for you. All right, giving you time to hit pause or stop. All right. Uh, okay, you should be gone by now. Okay, so here are some specific ideas of adventure hooks that you can use in your games in the Western Catacombs and in the Warzone. Most of these come out of the book that's in with the campaign set, but I have thrown a couple of my own ideas in. Just take what you want and uh, leave the rest. I mentioned in the main part of the episode about these magical portals that can sometimes warp you from one section of the catacombs to another. Uh, The book gives you more detail in this. It was originally designed as a defense measure used in the battle against the Horrors, and it opens and closes randomly in different spots at different times. It can lead anywhere that you want. It could be another part of the catacombs. It could be another part of length, so they could end up being in the smalls or in the vaults or wherever you want. Or it could even be a completely different part of Bar Save. If there is a a, a campaign setting that you've been wanting to play and you don't have a nice, clean, easy way to get them in, like the Twilight Peaks or something like that that's a little more difficult to work in, you could have them walk through a portal in the Western Catacombs and now they're wherever you want, and it's up to you to figure out how to bring them back if the portal comes back up or whatever. But you could warp them to a completely different part of bar save, it could go to another dimension if you wanted them to go to one of the, uh, you know, some some alternate reality. Uh, it can involve time travel. I've done that. That's a lot of fun. Or you could even take them into a completely different game setting. So if you play 1879, or if you play Shadowrun. Or if you play any other game, one time I did this with Deadlands. We were playing Earth Earthdawn, they walked through a portal and suddenly we're in Deadlands and I was using their Deadlands characters as NPCs and they were like kind of freaked out. So that was a lot of fun. Um, or even any other kind of fantasy property. You could have them uh, show up in a Star Wars <laughs> setting or anything you can think of. So the magical portal can be a really, really fun way to surprise your players. Another adventure idea that's in the book that I really like, and there are several others, but there's one called Living Mural. The players, they come across this mural where they recognize the faces of adventurers from around modern-day Haven. And one of the faces they recognize is one of the player characters. And it's up to the GM, just pick whichever one you think is going to make the game most fun. Now, the other people that are pictured that they recognize end up getting murdered one by one from left to right. And there are only two more people who have not been murdered in between the last murder and the player character. So you know that that player character's number is coming up. And it turns out that the killer is another person who's pictured in the mural, was adventuring in this area, saw their picture, and it just pushed them over the edge. They went crazy, and they've decided that somehow to to uh, stop this magic, the only way to do it is to kill everyone pictured there. And then the players have to track down that killer before they, before they make an attempt on the player character. I've never played that one, but I think I might do that coming up. Oh, unless Rachel's listening to this part. She should have stopped. Rachel, if you're listening, you should have stopped uh, at the spoiler warning. I'm going to have to make sure to tell her not to listen to this. Uh, Another idea here, a couple ideas for the war zone. Uh, The player characters can be ambushed by straw men, but they can win the battle. Just make it kind of an easy battle, but the straw men have a trophy on them. Now, I mentioned before that sometimes they'll use gold or jewels, but sometimes they'll actually just make these arbitrary objects to use as a trophy of war and they fight over it. And the example they give in the book, this really could be anything you want, but I think this is a cool visual. It's the head of an espagra, which is a like a lizard-type creature, uh, but it's hollowed out, and they took Jehuthra limbs and put all over it. So it's sort of this lizard head with spider legs coming off of it to make like additional horns, so it would be a pretty disgusting-looking trophy. But they're using—the players may not realize this, but they're using this trophy— as the spoils of war for their game. So if the players take this thing back with them, it belongs to Guile's forces. They are going to see that as the players being actively engaged in the war and making themselves a target. So as long as they're in possession of this trophy, then they're going to continually be um, attacked by Falsemen. men. You could even have the false men trying to get into Haven in large numbers and coming after them. So to solve this, the players need to figure out what's happening and return the trophy to Guile's territory. But that can be harder than it sounds because, as we mentioned before, the territory is constantly shifting. So they may go back to the same spot, and now that's under control of Smasher. So if they give the trophy to the other side, they're just compounding their problems. Uh, The other thing is if the trophy gets destroyed, then maybe you could have the adventurers have to go collect the parts and make a substitute that's close enough to trick them. Um, again, I've never played this one, but that that adventure hook out of the book, that sounds very fun. So I may have to work that into our game as well. So I just wanted to give you that as sort of a flavor of what else is in the book. It's packed full of these these little story uh, story frameworks, but they're kept generic enough. It's not full-blown with stats on everything and has to be for this circle or that type of group. They leave them generic enough that you can adapt these to about any situation. So if you get this campaign set... In addition to the background information, you have a lot of ready-to-go frameworks and ideas for stories. So um, I always, when I'm prepping these, I see these great ideas, but I'm like, no, nah, I can't say that because if anyone's listening, it'll ruin it for the players. So I just I couldn't resist on these. I had to had to mention them because these were very cool. Well, and thank you for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. I'm going to try to have it not be a long delay, uh, but we will be getting back here shortly uh, talking about the rest of par length. We've got two more episodes on the source material, and then I'm going to do a GM special where it's an entire, uh, t- entire spoiler-ridden episode uh, just talking about uh, what you can do with all this material and how to work it into a game. So that should be a lot of fun. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. <laughs> ¶¶